I'm Mark Haywood, and this is Behind the Spine, a podcast which deconstructs genre and narrative and finds learning opportunities for writers in the most unlikely of places. Paul and I together won a Lifetime Achievement Award, which had never been given to a magician and their assistant. My guest today is both a genuine entertainment heavyweight and a national treasure. The late great magician Paul Daniels has gone down in history as one of magic's giants. He broke new ground, drew in huge television audiences, and he cracked America. And he did so with the support of my guest. She's been gracing the stage as a magician's assistant, actress, dancer, and celebrity for decades. She's hosted radio shows, she has her own podcast, and were it not for COVID-19, she'd be busy with preparations for this winter's pantomime season. The theatre's loss, then, is our gain, because in today's episode, I'm delighted to be joined by the one, the only, the lovely Debbie McGee. Chapter one, it's all about timing. Magic is unique in that much of its narrative is kept completely secret from its audience. Rather than offering more and more information as the story unfolds, magic is designed to misdirect, confuse and bewilder, something very few other art forms could pull off successfully. And just like the magic itself, there's so much more to the role of a magician's assistant than meets the eye. Behind the glamorous appearance, the smile, the sparkly dress, lies a complexity we normal folk couldn't possibly comprehend. But I guess that's kind of the point. But just how much does the audience not understand? I think about 99%. <laughs> just 99, right. You know, <laughs> that's not to blow my own trumpet. But actually, it's, it's very interesting because nobody talks about this, you know. And so often people are saying, oh, the poor assistant, you know, is left in the background and whatever. And I suppose I'm one of those fortunate people that grew from being the assistant in the background to having my own personality and a partnership with Paul in the end, although he was still the magician. But I suppose the how to um, explain it, Mark, is that it's a shame because if you're training to be a singer or an actor or a dancer, you know, you go to academies to train. Most magicians Uh, It's changing, but they teach themselves and they actually don't understand about performing. And it sounds like I'm really criticising them, but I'm not talking about real professionals here. But even some of the big professionals don't actually understand the art of performing. The thing is, my background was, you know, commercial theatre, a classical ballet training. I was taught about timing and I don't know if that's something you can learn, but I think you can, actually. And as a magician's assistant, Paul said, you know, he had an act that didn't use an assistant for years. And then I joined the TV show. And up until then, they'd used lots of different girls every year. But what he he used to say about me was, A, I got more fan mail than the others. But also, I understood the timing of performing. And as a magician's assistant, I actually do lectures now for magician's assistants because so many magicians don't understand this, that an example would be 
you as an audience member think that this sort of stereotype, the magician's assistant going ta-da and putting their hands out to feature the magician is, you know, just a kind of bit corny. But actually, there's a lot more to it. And it doesn't have to be the old fashioned hold your hands up in the air or point them to the magician. But it's very important that you look at the magician and you don't move at the end of a trick. Because as soon as the assistant starts to move, the applause of the audience will go down because they will think, oh, they're going into another trick. So, you know, obviously I worked with my husband for 38 years. And so in the end, after we were married and I had a little bit more power, should we say, in the workspace, I would say, to, if we had an argument, I'll say, be careful because I'll kill your applause tonight. <laughs> because I knew, I, you know, I knew my job I, and I had to learn that. But I understood that part of it from my training as a dancer and being taught by somebody who really knew about performing. So that's just a tiny snippet of how important an assistant's role is if they really know their job, you know? But quite often I go to shows, and you know, obviously with lots of amateur magicians who the assistant is their girlfriend or isn't a performer. And I watch and I just think, no, no, hold it a bit longer, you know? Or in the middle of a trick where you're looking if you're trying to distract the audience, what, what the assistant is doing or where she's looking is so important. But, you know, not always people know about it. It's often struck me that the assistant is effectively the Watson to the Sherlock Holmes or the Lewis to the Inspector Morse. It's that it's it's up there. It's that important. It's neither can exist without the other. They are of equal importance. And I, I do think that we owe magicians assistants um a huge debt because as you say it was rather unique at the time when it came on not everybody was doing it now of course it's you know that either pen or teller are each other's assistants depending on um, the magic act that they're doing you've got Siegfried and Roy um it's becoming more and more prevalent now but but back then and you know you, you talked about being on the television you weren't just on television you effectively you were television for <laughs> You know, for, for a lot, I mean, I remember, you know, people of my age in, the, in their 40s will have grown up with that show on a Saturday night. It was television box office gold. The ratings that you had on that show, we're not going to see those again unless there's, unless England are playing in a World Cup semi final or final or something like that. It, it, I'm not exaggerating here. That was television gold back then, wasn't it? Yeah, thank you. Um, yes, I mean, I think that's what people don't understand now is, you know, it was bigger than X Factor or Strictly for that matter. You know, um, of course, because there weren't so many channels, there wasn't Netflix and all of that. And so in a way, if you could get on screen regularly, it was a little bit easier to become famous for your talent. These days, it's easier to become famous for being on a reality show, you know, doing a podcast or blogs and things like that, or vlogging, you know, the whole business has changed, which is inc incredible in such a short space of time. You, you may be one of the few people and or couples that have ever been on a show like Strictly uh, to accept lower ratings than you were used to. I think yeah. that's quite, 
quite funny. <laughs> I mean, what was what was amazing about doing Strictly, which I hadn't realised when I took the job, well, A, it just felt like I was back in show business, you know, because everybody wanted you to do well. Every, people say to me, what was the difference about doing Strictly to other jobs? And I say, because every single member of that team want you to be the best they can make you. And what's changed in show business these days is if you do a reality show, really they're trying to make you look as bad as they can. So that, you know, there is no makeup and hair, you know, they get you in the jungle, catching you at your worst moment, uh, no sleep. They manipulate it so you, you know, if you do wife swap or something, that so it, you, they take you to extremes, and that's what I find really difficult because I went into television particularly, but show business where it was glamorous and they wanted to make you look good, and you didn't get to show your face on that screen until you know they were happy. The producer, the director, the makeup girl. You know, they supplied your clothes. These days, you have to supply your own, you know, where we had our clothes made for us. So nobody else was seen in them. You know, now it's become you are like everybody else at home. And I, it's changed completely. So Strictly was very much me going back to the days of the Paul Daniels magic show of everything being professional everyone knowing their jobs, trying to make you look the best you can and, you know, being old show business. Talking about the show, magic has long fascinated me. And when you step back and try to analyze why we like magic, there's some interesting observations I think that we can we can pull out. There's a familiarity, first of all, to a magic act and that we know the magician is going to have some form of Patter. There's going to be some kind of routine. There may even be a bit of fake. Oh, it's gone wrong. Um, let's in, let's inject some jeopardy into it. Ultimately, we know that this is a human being. It's not somebody from Hogwarts. It's not Harry Potter. You know, waving a magic wand. This is either sleight of hand or misdirection or some kind of setup to confuse us. We know that, and yet. We still watch. We still want to know either how it works or we want to be entertained. There's a childlike joy, I think, in watching ma magic. What do you think it is about magic that draws people in? Because we know that we're being conned or tricked in some way, and yet we still watch. Why do you think that is? Well, I think it's really interesting, Mark, and I think you've hit on a lot of things. I think it is because magic is so complex and we've all got different types of brain. And so it's got something for everybody. It's got entertainment. If you just want to be entertained, you don't know, want to know how it's done. Other people really want to work out how it's done. And others, you know, want to believe that there's something we don't know about out there and that magic is magic and there are people that still you know Paul and I used to get loads of letters from people that really believed it was magic and I still get questions asked now you know that and I say well no you know it's all a trick you know what Uri Geller does is a trick he's a magician but, but a great showman and the other thing I think with magic is it's totally international you don't have to speak the magician's language to watch a magic trick. So therefore, it's a way that we all can communicate, even if you can't speak somebody else's language. It's fascinating because when your show um, came on air, magic was 
that I know you started off doing, you did the, you did the club circuit for a while and then you did the holiday season circuit for a while. And then there was mainstream television. If you roll the clock forward, magic is now a global phenomenon. There's a huge amount of money invested in it. There are shows that run in Vegas for the best part of a decade. They do 250 shows a year. It's still got this mass market global appeal. It's pure box office, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, going back to when our magic show started, I mean, Paul did the clubs and and summer seasons and various things before I worked with him. And, you know, he was, I mean, it might be interesting for anyone listening. I once read a quote years ago and it said, there are a lot of people out there with talent, but it's the ones that persevere that succeed. And in this climate at the moment of you know the pandemic i think that's going to be absolutely true and paul employed somebody to hype him onto television and it's a long story so i won't go into it now but basically a guy stayed in the foyer because in those days you could uh, at the bbc when they used to have talent scouts and it was one particular man until this guy agreed to see him and said i've got this act paul daniels please come and see him because, and that's how Paul, he didn't get onto the BBC at that time, but he got a series with Granada. And then when there was a gap at the BBC, he got started his own uh, magic shows. And um, I think magic, we love being baffled, don't we? Chapter two, the unusualist. To be a great magician, you have to be damn good at magic. goes without saying but it's clear you also need the charm the patter the delivery with all that and the nous to hire a television hype man paul and debbie were breaking ground not only that they were going global too in our interconnected world where the us and the uk share talent we can forget that not too long ago it was quite a feat for a british celebrity to break through to an american audience the magic world is a huge world and obviously particularly in America and they had this place in Hollywood called the Magic Castle and it's the Academy of Magical Arts I think it's called which is you know the most glitzy most showbiz connected magic club in the world even more than our magic circle in London because that's very much a club even though the members are global. And the Magic Castle or the Academy of Magical Arts, Paul was the first magician who was a non-American to receive their Magician of the Year award. And then a few years later, Paul and I together won a Lifetime Achievement Award, which had never been given to a magician and their assistant. So we did, we were quite groundbreaking um, in that respect. And um Going back to what you were saying about Magic Now being huge and, you know, in Vegas, all these shows and whatever, you know, when Paul broke on to British TV as a magician, there had been David Nixon before him and David Berglas and another mind reader, Chankanasta. Various people had had series uh, and been famous in different decades. But no one had been like Paul were doing the funny patter with the magic working. You know, Tommy Cooper was hysterical, but his magic didn't work. You know, he was just a, a comedy magician. And it was really hard. You know, television didn't really want magicians. 
it was, you know, even getting into the clubs, Paul never called himself a magician. He called himself the unusualist. And that's how he got work in the clubs. Because if you said he was a magician, you couldn't get a job, basically. And from him breaking onto television and making magic much bigger and much to a much wider audience, other magicians at that time, even now, will write to me and say, you know, we can't ever thank Paul enough because he really made magic something that, that you know, the public really liked. I spoke to a writer recently. She wrote a book called Mudlarking, which is the term given to people who scan the foreshore of a river for objects that have been discarded or lost or washed up on the shore. And she has received a huge amount of hate on social media for talking about mudlarking and where she mudlarks and where the best spot to do it and she effectively said it's a bit like being Darren Brown you know I am hated for explaining how this stuff works that's a big thing in magic isn't it people that step up and say let let's just debunk um, a few minutes here let's explain to you how this magic works that's not supposed to happen is it people get very nervous about explaining how magic works don't they well yes they do but actually Mostly the people who get angry about tricks being explained are amateurs. It's because they don't do it as a profession. Paul used to call them trickaholics because it, was it wasn't about the presentation of the trick. It's about the method. Magicians, it's all about that secret method. So they don't like their secrets being given out. And I can remember when the masked magician was on television and, you know, the magic circle and everybody went crazy. It didn't affect our career. <laughs> it didn't stop people watching our, our shows or other professional magicians. And you as a punter, even if you'd seen the masked magician do a soaring in half, it was a stock method. And there are hundreds of methods of soaring a girl in half. I mean, I think I've done about 30 in my career. So the way we did it was different to him. So the only sad thing is that some people will be doing it in the way that he did it, and it's taking away the entertainment because you people will watch it and say, well, I know how it's done. The actor Bill Murray once famously said that every Olympic event should have an ordinary member of the public in it to give you some perspective as to how clever and skilled and fit and, um, uh, and just brilliant these athletes actually are. It's the same with magic, just being able to know how it's done doesn't get in the way of you being astonished by the skill that it takes to actually create that illusion. I think that's that's probably a fair a fair thing, isn't it? Even if you know how a trick works, you're still blown away by the sheer illusion that's created by the the magician and what it is they do. Yeah, and and you know, even though I suppose there are very few things that come out that I don't know how it's done because Paul Paul and Teller were the two most read performing magicians that I've ever met in the magic world. And I've probably met virtually everybody. So, you know, we would watch something. And if I couldn't work out, out how it was done, Paul always knew. <laughs> he said, you know, I'm, it's even on the um, Fool Us with Penn and Teller, because I know Teller well. You know, I'm not convinced that when, even when he says he doesn't know how it's done, I think that he probably could work it out. Chapter 3. Oh no, she isn't. 
great stories are those you can come back to time and again and still gain immense pleasure from. I know it's September, so I'm sorry about this, but there really is no better time of the year to come back to a much-loved tale than at Christmas. I mean, how many times have you rewatched Love Actually? And there's nothing more bizarre than one particular UK Christmas tradition, pantomime. And I don't mean bizarre in a bad way. Just like magic, its peculiarities are also its charm. Sadly, if the virus outbreak hadn't already taken enough from us, it's also taken panto. Debbie's usual appearances have been unfortunately put on hold. Yes, I was meant to be playing Fairy Godmother in Cinderella with um, Craig Revel Horwood from Strictly playing the Wicked Stepmother. Um, so we were so looking forward to working together and with Sooty. <laughs> now, if you haven't seen Sooty in Panto, you haven't lived. <laughs> I have done a Panto with him before. <laughs> um, and of I course. He's still working. That's amazing. Oh, oh honestly, huge. Still, you know, through every generation, Sooty is loved. And now they also have um, Rich Cadell, who owns Sooty now. He loves magic. So he's actually bought big illusions from America. So when Sooty and him are doing pantomime, um, he incorporates some of these huge illusions as well. So it's all become very magical. Uh, so, yes, I was meant to be doing that. I would be probably just getting my script and learning it. But I'd be getting myself fit because panto takes so much energy. And although I'm fit, I always have to up my cardio before I start a panto or you just can't keep going till for the end of the run. So yeah, I you know I'm going to have Christmas off. I won't know what to do with myself. That's amazing. I don't know whether you ever played the Palace Theatre in Manchester in the 80s, but if you did, whatever panto it was, I will I will have seen you in it because it was an annual family outing and I've always been struck by the similarity between things like magic and panto in the sense that so you saying I'm playing the fairy godmother in Cinderella, I almost don't need to go because I know exactly what I'm going to get just by seeing the poster that says Debbie McGee is playing this role in this pantomime. I know exactly what it's going to be like. And yet we turn up in our hundreds of thousands. And it's tragic to think that that box office is going to be lost, hopefully for just for one year only. But the familiarity that you get with both magic and panto, it, it's are, isn't it? We keep coming back, even though we know what we're going to get. Yes, it's because we love it, isn't it? And British people love tradition as well. People go back to see singers they love doing concerts, hearing all their hits. And actually, I can remember, and this isn't name dropping, but years ago doing a Royal Variety performance that Cliff Richard was on, and so was Aha, who were a Norwegian three boy band um, in the eighties, eighties or nineties it was, and um, we were all we were all on the staircase at the Palladium, and I was talking to Aha, and Cliff Richard came up and started talking, and um, the boys said Aha said to Cliff, oh you know we're out on tour, we've written all this new stuff, you know, and Cliff who had been in the business for a very long time even then so can I just give you one bit of advice boys he said um, do all your hits and just do one new song to get them used to it he said and he, oh, Sinatra did that 
you know, the big boys. And um, I don't know whether AHA did that or not, but actually I don't know where they are now and Cliff is still here is all I'm going to say. But that's what it's about. We, things that we love, we will watch over and over again. And Panto, I think, is usually something the whole family can enjoy. You know, it's something we love going to every year. It's the tradition. You know, my family used to always go on Boxing Day. And also, because of different performers, there's always a bit, will it go wrong? You know, did they intend that to go wrong? Because we both know that, you know, if something goes wrong in the early days of Panto and it gets a big laugh, quite often it stays in. I mean, I'm a person that I think people are surprised at when they come to see me in Panto because they expect me to be quite a ethereal straight fairy but actually I'm the biggest giggler in the world and so I end up breaking down quite often and um you know I'm I think it's important to keep the story going for the children but that doesn't mean to say you can have little asides and different things go on which tend to happen with me or I forget my lines and you know that ends up being something a big laugh and I, I'm actually a person that if I do something happens and it gets a big laugh, I don't repeat it because I can never make it that spontaneous. So whatever happens with me, it is completely spontaneous, which Paul taught me that, actually. If I think about the Pantos, you know, Panto stars that I saw in the 80s in Manchester, we're, we're in the realms of the likes of Norman Collier, Les Dawson, Russ Abbott. My wife was even in Panto with Stu Francis. <laughs> you know, kind oh, of yeah. <laughs> you yeah, know, the so, English one, not the American one. <laughs> the English one, not the American one, yeah. But but on that, there's something uniquely British about this, isn't there? It's so bizarre. It really doesn't travel, does it? No, no, it really doesn't. And they have tried it in different countries, but, you know, it, it doesn't. It's something that as Brits, I mean, you think about Panto, uh, usually it's a child's first introduction to theatre. So hopefully yes. they fall in love with theatre. But if you try, which I have many a time, tried to explain what a pantomime is to somebody who isn't English, you said, well, yeah, there's a mother that's a man dressed up as a woman. And in the old days, you know, the prince was always a girl in thigh boots and fishnet stockings and hot pants, you know, or whatever. And actually, uh, a lovely little story is um, not that long ago. It was just before Paul died. So about five years ago, you know, Teller is a really lovely friend of ours. And Penn and Teller were in London doing some shows. And Teller had some few days off so we kind of got together and then uh, we said have you ever seen a British panto and uh, Teller said no I'd love to and Dame Edna Everidge was at Wimbledon that year so we took Teller and you know the joy that Paul and I got watching Teller laughing his head off <laughs> not being able to believe what he was watching and if you haven't seen Dame Edna in panto you know you've really missed something because you know she he was absolutely incredible i've seen him about three times doing pantomime and you know wonderful wonderful ad libs everything you haven't lived it i mean it's almost as if, if you turned up and craig revel hallwood were not wearing makeup a dress and a big wig you'd almost be disappointed wouldn't you? yeah and you know um you know we're fortunate i think uh, and i'm older than you but to be able to see in panto variety acts are always amazing because they are used to, A, controlling an audience with their own words, and 
performing and having to ad lib when something goes wrong. And so Cannon and Ball, you know, little and large in those days in the 80s, uh, you know, and even people now who aren't so famous, like Bobby Davro and various people, are just amazing in pantomime. Yeah, Brian Connolly, you know. There's a huge outpouring of love i think for that generation of performer it was a different skill i think about i even think about brucey you know adding him oh, in amazing in, yeah in, jimmy tarbuck jimmy tarbuck yeah absolutely that that generation of um as you say of variety performers and i i do think that um that history will will judge you and Paul with incredible love given what you achieved or at least I would like to hope that history would would judge you in in that way because it was a unique thing it's unlikely to be repeated now given the variety that we have in terms of uh, television channels and output and content and viewing figures you know being spread over so many different channels but if I if I think back to those Saturday nights and watching magic and trying to work out how a trick worked i'm still fascinated to this day by how things work so i i would i think that 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 you will be judged with a huge amount of love by by society because of what you achieved and i i think that's a a huge thing um if i may uh, debbie just to talk about your own podcast um for a for a few moments, you're a few episodes in. I'd spill the tea with um with with Debbie McGee. You're talking with people that you've um that you've worked with, aren't you? Yeah, I started off actually. I think the first five are just me telling stories from my life, and then I thought it would be nice to chat, you know, to different mates and pe- not necessarily famous ones. Although I've got Neil Morrissey, Vicky Michelle's is hysterical and very interesting I have to say it's been really really popular you know my two Strictly partners the one I have for the series and the Christmas show uh, begins and then I've now started talking to people that I know in the business who if I said their names like Andy Nyman you might not know but they are people I know are really special and I think I've got a lot to offer and I really want in my podcast to for people to find out about that person you know what makes them and it not just people who are in the business but even people who are our audience are always interesting in finding out you know how did you get there (laughs) how did you get that work and you know everyone I know who's really talented in the business are a nice people but it wasn't easy to get where they've got which is why they're still there and even if they're not you know big famous famous people they are known within the industry and they're always working and the reason is always because they don't sit at home and just wait for their agent to ring them with a job there's always something behind it it's those people that persevere and even in lockdown I agree with you if you're writing and creating I'm putting my own one woman show together at the moment um, because I have led you know I've I'm, I'm sort of a somebody, I don't want to appear big-headed and I don't want to show off. But when I start telling stories of what's happened in my life, people go, oh, you ought to tell people about this or write a book. So I thought, oh, well, I, you know, maybe I will share them, you know, with a, uh, a show and put a show together, showing clips and stories and people, you know, shows I did for royalty and things that went wrong. You know, I got stuck in Iran in the revolution and had quite a few frightening things happen but the how I'm very lucky that I seem to have one of those strong characters 
that I always believe I will get out the other end. You know, whoever you are, there will be times in your life where you're hit with things that you don't know how you're going to get out of or a sadness of me losing Paul. But I always, whatever's going on, I always believe there's a way out. And I always believe enjoy today because you don't know what's happening tomorrow. So um, most of the people I'm interviewing have that sort of attitude. And I, I know that you've listened to the Neil Morrissey one. And what I love about Neil is that, A, he's so intelligent and, you know, he plays or did play a lot of roles where he was just Jack the Lat. But actually, when you talk to him, this is one hell of a bright boy. But coming from the background that he came from with alcoholic parents, taken away by social services, never saw his parents again and brought up in foster homes and children's homes with not one ounce of bitterness and didn't get to see his brother, you know, for another I can't remember how many years it was, but it was years before he saw his brother again. There isn't an ounce of bitterness in that boy and he or man, and he has worked his butt off to get what he's got. And people look and think, oh, well, it's just easy because you've got a talent as an actor. No, it's, it's never just about having talent. Yeah, uh, and that was a real lesson that I took away from that. I, I loved that one. I also loved the um, the interview with Biggins. Ju- I mean, just because he's you know, Biggins, yeah. <laughs> because he's Biggins, right? Well, it was you and Biggins, really. You know, talking about my childhood, it was great. I, 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 <laughs> Um, so there's the podcast, there's the show that you're developing, not doing Panto, but um, bookings have been what just moved to the same time next year. Is that is that fair for for, for Panto? Panto has uh, yeah. the play I was doing, a Peter James one, The House on Cold Hill. Um, that is hovering, is how I'd describe it, hoping for it to come back as early next year as possible. But of course, between now and then, who knows what's going to happen? You know, they, all these places need funding and they haven't got an income at the moment. So you just hope it will happen. Um, I was also booked to do a tour of a musical and for it to be in the West End. So that at the moment, they're hoping to start from next July and maybe happen in the year 2022. I had to hesitate and think of that. The following carry on over after my panto, which is what it was meant to do this year. So we shall see, Mark. I mean, you know, it's it's weird. I've never not worked as much as this, you know, but I have to say that I believe what you believe is don't push yourself in lockdown. This, you're never going to get this bit of life back. And usually I'm on a treadmill that I'm thinking, oh, I've got to do this. And what can I think? What can I do? What work can I create? You know, what audition have, has my agent got? And I was always like that. You know, before I worked with Paul, I used to ring my agent at least twice a day till they got sick of me and got me an audition. You know, um, yeah, take time to smell the roses. And there are lots of people out there who are under unbelievable stress of how are we going to pay our bills and feed our children. And I just hope that there's a way that we can all come through this without too many people really finding that they can't. You know, I'm involved with quite a few um, show business charities. I'm involved with charities that are, you know, like ready food banks 
that really are struggling now because there's so many people needing their help. And I just hope that it kind of brings us all together as a nation to also help people out there that need help. Yeah, absolutely. And and on that, Debbie, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Good luck with the development of the show and with the podcast. I'd encourage um, all of my listeners to um, to tune in and listen to that. It's been great. Um, Debbie, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Conclusion. A massive thanks then to Debbie McGee for joining me on the podcast. And to recap, what have we learned? Subtlety is vital in any great story. In magic, it's what you don't see that gives a trick its power. The audience doesn't need to understand everything. You should allow breathing space for your readers' imaginations to run wild. One of magic's biggest strengths is that it has something for everyone. People will each take something unique from your writing. Ensure they can do that by providing plenty of ways for them to engage with the story. Television didn't want magic. Paul had to call himself the unusualist to get into clubs, and clearly it worked. Sometimes you don't need to go back to the drawing board with your idea. Simply reframing it will suffice. We all love tradition, and we all love to experience things more than once. A major theme of this podcast has been to avoid leaning on stereotypes. But actually, if they're not harmful, familiar stories and cliches can still provide audiences with a great sense of comfort and satisfaction feel at liberty to sometimes just walk the well-trodden path. And finally, Debbie's absolutely right. There are a lot of people out there with talent, but it's the ones who persevere that succeed. If you feel like you're banging your head against a brick wall, don't quit. Otherwise, this will all have been for nothing. Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Haywood, and if you'd like to get in touch, we're on Twitter and Facebook as at Behind the Spine. New episodes release weekly. Please like us and review us on Apple Podcasts. It really does help. And that's a wrap on our first series. It's gone so fast, but already we've had 22 incredible conversations with a host of amazing people. We've got plenty of developments in the fire for series two, and it won't be long before we're back. In the meantime, next week, we'll be sharing a series of clips highlighting some of the best moments from the podcast so far. Goodbye for now. Stay safe and keep writing. And as Paul said, you'll like this, not a lot, but you'll like it.